So each of us hears and sees the world around us uh, with a particular filter, a kind of a lens. We interpret things around us uh, from a particular sort of mindset and worldview. So as a Wakefield and as a pastor who went to seminary and likes reading nerdy theological books, um, I have a filter (laughs) that kind of assumes that everybody, um, even if they don't know it, even if they're not aware of it, that everybody, that everybody around is talking about God even when they're not talking about God in the ultimate things of life. Like I interpret all of life through sort of a theological filter. Here's what I mean. So um, a well-known singer named Chris Cornell uh, was, was considered once one of the top alt-rock post-grunge singers. Uh, um, that's an actual category of music, apparently, by the way. Um, alt-rock post-grunge. Um, probably has lots of other things, too. But uh, he was frontman. Chris Cornell was frontman for a couple really well-known alt-rock post-grunge bands. Um, he wrote a song where he said this. You gave me life, now show me how to live it. You gave me life, now show me how to live it. So being me, (laughs) being a Wakefield, being a pastor, seeing life from a theological lens, I assumed that uh, this lyric was sort of a cry to God, right? Like some kind of God at least, to show him, to show us how to live as we've been given life. How to live as the creator intended for us to live, right? Right? I was thinking, oh, that's a, that's a cool lyric. <laughs> Show me how to live, God. Um, he's crying for help from God. Um, and how cool is it that God's smarter than us and he gave us Jesus to show us how to live. I'm in, sort of interpreting the lyric, over-interpreting the lyric um, like that. Um, and so actually it wasn't at all like that. In sermon prep this week, as I'm looking up the lyric, I think, how does this Chris Cornell guy interpret this? So I look down and I track down the meaning of this song on this thing called the Information Superhighway. Anybody heard heard of this thing? Invented by Al Gore, Tennessean. So I tracked down, um, I tracked down what Chris Cornell here was getting at in this, in his own words. And as it turned out, he wasn't being remotely as sort of existential and deep as I'd hoped, <laughs> at least not according to his accounting of it. Uh, apparently, when he wrote this lyric, um, you gave me life, now show me how to live it, he was thinking of the novel Frankenstein, uh, the famous Mary... Sh- <laughs> Some of you all who have taken high school English see where this is headed. In case you don't know, uh, spoiler alert, in the story, Dr. Victor Frankenstein uh, was driven by this obsessive, uh, this obsessive scientific quest for the secret of life. Uh, so he creates what he hopes is the perfect being, right? And the results are disastrous. His creation turns into a monster who basically uh, makes the doctor's life um, miserable and, and, well, <laughs> kills all the doctor's loved ones. Um, So good morning. Welcome to church. Um, So when this singer, Chris Cornell, wrote, you gave me life. Now show me how to live it. He was not thinking about God at all. He was thinking about Frankenstein's monster making appeal to the uh, creator, to Dr. Frankenstein. You gave me life. Now show me how to live it. So I went away from that little rabbit trail feeling like, don't you hate it when... uh, when you think you started down something really meaningful and helpful and really cool and deep and existential that you can use, um, and it's a dead end. 
Um, so it becomes a sermon illustration, I guess. Um, I suspect, like I experienced with that, you've started down promising paths only to discover they did not give you the, the meaning and the life that they promised. Like, like you went down a certain road. You, you took on a certain activity. You developed a certain relationship. You used your life's resources in a certain way, thinking it was a promising path that was going to be this deep, existential, meaningful, life-giving thing, and you realized it didn't do it. As it turns out, all things and all relationships are those dead ends in comparison to the life that we have in Jesus. Now, if you think I'm overstating that case, come along on the journey with me through John 10 in just a moment here. If you think I'm overstating that case, come along on the journey through John 10 to hear Jesus' own words about how emphatically he actually means this. Now, I suspect you, like me, before we get to John 10, I suspect you have started down promising paths that you thought would offer you life only to discover they don't give you the meaning and the purpose that you thought they would. You think things like, I will have life, I will have meaning, I will have purpose. If I invest myself fully in my children so that they will be happy and fulfilled, which works for a couple decades, But if we focus on the children, instead of focusing the children on the giver of life, we risk ending up devastated when they have the gall of all things to grow up and to leave us. There's nothing like the feeling for parents of being rejected by the very people who gave your life life. Figured we'd start with the jugular and then work our way down to a little easier. (laughs) Maybe we focus on our careers as the meaning and the purpose and the giver of our lives, but careers go away with age. And worse yet, sometimes we get fired in ways that have nothing to do with our giftedness or our ability or how well we do our jobs. It's just the market. There's nothing like being rejected by the very thing that gave your life life. Some people find purpose in becoming more and more physically fit. Uh, These people, by the way, impress me with their discipline (laughs) and their control and their dedication. But even for the best of them, even for the most fit of them, the most beautiful and amazing, the body eventually fails. I find my purpose in Oreos and pizza. Others find their purpose in being ripped. Just kidding. No, I'm not really kidding. I do find too much much purpose in food. Some people find their purpose in life and meaning in taking gratuitous risk, right? Like skydiving, climbing mountains without a tether, uh, doing backflips on narrow spaces high above the ground, things that we see on the internet. Like these videos of people online putting their life into jeopardy here, like doing amazing things in dangerous places. For me, those are hard to watch because in my mind, doing something risky for the sake of feeling alive actually sometimes results in death needlessly. I mean, those of you who like skydiving, um, go right ahead. Um, I won't join you. But for me, that's, that's an example of a tragic loss of life sometimes a pursuit of life that didn't end up doing what they'd hoped. It was a temporary thrill. 
Listen, you could be a beautiful person hoping your beauty will give you life. You could be a young person hoping your youth will do it. A smart person hoping that acquiring more and more knowledge will do it. A political person hoping that the right people in charge are going to do it. But every single one of these paths taken as the goal of life will ultimately result in a dead end in comparison to the life that's found in Jesus. These are temporary fixes, all of them. The people, the resources, the relationships, you name it. These are all temporary fixes that bring comfort, but they do not bring life. And they will not be hope beyond this life. Which is to say that when we put weight, when we put too much weight on things that cannot handle hope, they end up turning on us like a Frankenstein that devours. They are paths that feel like life, but they are actually death. Jesus stands alone as the exclusive source and sustainer and model for life. He alone is the hope for true life that lasts in comparison to all of the good things that bring us temporary comfort, that one relationship with Jesus will bring us true life forever. I mean it that definitively because I think Jesus says it that way. Jump in at John 10. Look at verses 7 through 15. Where Jesus himself makes this claim, this radical claim about being the exclusive source and sustainer of life. So look at just just at verse 7 there first to start out with. Jesus said again, we'll look at that word again there in a second. So Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now press pause. Just a few verses earlier here, Jesus had been telling his disciples that as sheep, they follow him out of and into the sheep pen. In other words, They live in the sheep pen, and as the good shepherd, he is the one who leads them out and who brings them in. He is the one who leads them out of the sheep pen and who brings them in. He leads them out to pasture to feed and brings them back into the pen to rest. And as shepherd, he makes sure they're fed, he keeps them safe, he knows their name, they know his voice, they follow him because they recognize his voice. So Jesus was talking about that using the shepherding metaphor to help his followers, to help his disciples understand that as sheep, they are dependent on the shepherd for life. As sheep, they are fully, entirely dependent on the shepherd for their very existence. (laughs) But it didn't really take in the previous verses. In fact, verse 6, the immediately preceding verse to our passage here, says they did not understand what he was saying to them. But just to say, apparently it takes sheep a while to catch on. Are we all tracking as sheep? That's why John begins our passage today in verse 7 by saying, So Jesus again said to them, to reiterate, he repeats the shepherding metaphor, but this time he strengthens it, he strengthens the metaphor, and he changes it a bit. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door of the sheep. I don't just guide you in and out. I actually am the way in and out. There are lots of guides, but I am the door. And when he says, I am the door, it's one of the many places in the Gospel of John 
where Jesus is making explicit his claim to divine authority as Messiah. Jesus is very obviously here and intentionally referring back to the Old Testament when God revealed himself to Moses, when Moses said, hey, what's your name? And he says, I am, I am that I am. I am the forever existent, was, is, will be, ground of all being. I am the creator and sustainer of all life. So Jesus here grabs back into that and says, I am the door. So to put everything we've got together um, so far here, Jesus is saying this. Listen, not only do I lead you in and out like a guide, and not only do I keep you safe and protect you, but I am the door itself. I don't just protect you like an earthly shepherd who cares for his sheep because they're his sheep. I am the difference between life and death for you. Let's keep reading. Not only am I the good shepherd... A good earthly shepherd, but keep reading, verse 8, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. In other words, all the other potential shepherds, all the other offers of life are posers who pretend to care for the sheep. Verse 9, to reiterate, stated simply, Jesus speaking, I am the door. I am the door. Now, before we move on to the text, Notice here in verse 9 that Jesus repeats what he just said in verse 7, but without reference to the sheep. He just says very simply, very definitively, like in case they're not tracking, I am the door. And then he says, I am the door. There's one door. There aren't many doors. There's just one door, and getting through this one door is the way to real life that means more. Keep reading verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. If anyone enters by me, because I am the door, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now, some think here that in verse 9, Jesus is not implying a sort of an ultimate salvation. And that he's just sort of saying like, I've got your back in the here and now. All your needs will be met. I will provide what you need for life here in the pen and in the pasture. As if he wasn't really claiming to be the, the Messiah, the Son of God. But he implies here much more than just, I got your needs in the here and now. He's actually saying, not only am I how you exist how you live and breathe and move, I am how you will exist as saved past your sin that would otherwise destroy you. He's saying, I am your life. That's why he says things like, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the bread, I am your life. Look up all those I am passages that are throughout John, if you'd like. So we know that he's saying something more than just the here and now, and that he's including the afterlife for a few reasons. Uh, number one, he will be saved. He will be saved here is a future tense, and it implies the afterlife. Plus, to make that argument stronger, it could be translated, he will be kept safe in the passive. So it's a future passive. Nerds, isn't that cool? Second reason, in a bunch of other places, Jesus makes it clear, especially with the other I am statements that are throughout John, that he means saved ultimately, as in forever relationship with God. 
He says, for example, in John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father, the creator and sustainer of all life, from whence we all have our life. No one comes to the Father except by me, through, by way of me, he says. He's saying this definitively, like I am the door, y'all. There's no other door. (laughs) I'm the door. And then third reason why here we know that he's talking about ultimate uh, reality past this life and salvation beyond this life is he contrasts the salvation in verse 9 with the poser shepherds in verse 10. Keep reading. He says, as opposed to me, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. (laughs) Jesus is saying the evil one wants to do everything to kill you. That's his entire purpose. Jesus is pleading with the disciples here. He's saying, don't you see it? All other potential shepherds of your life are posers. All other offers are empty. All other voices for your purpose and your meaning apart from me are for your death. He's pleading with the disciples here. Don't listen to to what the rest of life offers. He says, I've come so that you can have a life that means more. Keep reading. He says, I came that they, meaning those who know and follow my voice, the sheep, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I came so that my sheep can have life in abundance. Now, this abundance here isn't so much um, about an amount of life, though it includes that. Uh, This is more of an emphasis on having a certain kind of life. The abundant life is a life that offers fullness that others can't offer. It's a way of saying that when you follow the good shepherd, he is the one who creates new life in you in a way that gives true and ultimate meaning and purpose and existence that nothing else can, that nothing else will. Only Jesus can do that. The thief does not. So don't entertain the offers of other shepherds. They don't care about you like I do. Jesus says here, look at verse 11 and following there. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Now listen to these verses as if Jesus is pleading for you. Read these personally to hear how he is all in for you to bring you real life. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Now jump back again at verse 11. I want you to see a couple things here and interact with the way Jesus is pleading for us in this. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What other shepherd does that for you? What other offer of life does that for you, he's saying? What other proposed source of life offers death for you so that you can have life, Jesus is saying. This is what a good shepherd does for you. He who is a hired hand, in contrast to the good shepherd, a hired hand who is not invested, 
It was just there for the temporary money. He who's a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, who are poser shepherds, who didn't create you, who doesn't love you, uh, these who don't die for you, they see the wolf coming and they leave the sheep and they flee, meaning they run when it gets tough and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand who doesn't own and who cares nothing for the sheep. He reiterates it. He says it again. I am the good shepherd. He says it four times in the span of verses um, 7 through 18. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Think of the relationship between Jesus, the perfect Messiah, Son of God, and the Father. Think Think of the perfect relationship he has. Fullness of love and joy and peace and life. Fullness. That abundant relationship between Father and Son. He says, I know my own. I know my own. And my own know me just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. He tells us twice in this passage, twice more in verses 17 and 18, that he lays down his life for his sheep. When things get ugly, friends, when life seems hopeless, when uninvested hired hands and poser shepherds in your life offer what they cannot deliver, when all is said and done, only the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Friends, please hear this clearly from the one who said it first. Jesus, who justifiably deserved to stay in heaven with the Father forever, in perfect relationship, enjoying the riches of holiness and perfection, that Jesus loved you enough that He came to die for you so that you could have the hope of eternal life and perfect relationship with the Father as He Himself had. Wow. Hired hands. Life's resources. Human relationships. Your giftedness. Your smarts. Name it cannot offer you that. All other offers of life may bring temporary comfort and the pretense of safety, but none of them can bring the hope of eternal life. This is an exclusive claim Jesus can make. All other offers, even things we call good, even things God can use for His glory can bring a temporary feeling and pretense of safety, but they cannot bring the hope of eternal life like a relationship with Jesus. You know this. You know this is true if you stood next to the coffin of someone you love. Here's what I mean. (laughs) The fact that he or she had a great career, lots of money, tons of friends, did amazing things, You loved, loved you. However awesome that person might have been, those might be sources of comfort, but none of those are sources of hope without Jesus. Good things are not ultimate things that save you. Good things are meant to have the Spirit of God in them to point you to the Good Shepherd. 
I'm going to close by uh, tying up the loose ends of the Chris Cornell story. Turns out I was right, <laughs> in a sense. Uh, Chris Cornell's cry in that song uh, was more theological than perhaps he knew. Uh, when he wrote that lyric, uh, You gave me life, now show me how to live it. He was searching for someone uh, to show him what, what fullness of life looks like. In an interview that he gave as an adult, he revealed that when he was a kid, uh, his mom bought him a drum set. And that set a chain of events where music became his life. He lived for music. When he was an adult and in that interview, he said he believed that music saved his life. It gave him purpose. It, it set him apart. It made him famous. It brought him millions. But it did not bring him hope. It did not bring him eternal life. On May 18th, 2017, immediately after he performed in front of many thousands of adoring fans, Cornell committed suicide by hanging himself in his hotel room. The many false shepherds in his life on which he placed his trust and his faith, led him down a path that ultimately was his undoing. Friends, this tragedy is a warning for us that points to a need for ultimate hope for ourselves and for all others around us. We are people who know in Jesus fullness of life. We are people who in Jesus no fullness of life. And we are called to be ambassadors of hope. We are called to be ambassadors of the hope of Jesus. Jesus as life to those who need to know that life means more than the empty promises of false shepherds. Because we know the voice of the good shepherd who offers us life. Let's pray, friends. Father, forgive us for how passionately we listen to the voices of the false shepherds around us, of the hired hands who make promises that are empty. Or give for us in 2019, individually and corporately, a vision that sees um, our life as purposed through your economy of the kingdom that is going forth to bring life to others. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to show us through your Son, Jesus, that it is only in relationship with you um, that we can know ultimate purpose and meaning. It is only in relationship with you that we can find contentment, and peace, and ultimate joy. Lord, we're grateful that you're the good shepherd who saw our need and sacrificed yourself for us. Lord, make of us men and women who grow up into that truth, whose lives uh, demonstrate hope uh, because we know we have fullness in life fullness of life in you.
name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.